Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we look at the symbol of the heart and consider its central place in the practice of the symbolic life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. The most beautiful truth, as history has shown a thousand times over, is of no use at all, unless it has become the innermost experience and possession of the individual. Every unequivocal so-called clear answer always remains stuck in the head, and seldom penetrates to the heart. Now I chose this quote to start with because it elaborates on a comment that I made in last week's episode on the living symbol. And there I said that what can't be grasped by the head must be intuited by the heart. And this echoes Jung's statement that we just heard that every unequivocal so-called clear answer always remains stuck in the head and seldom penetrates to the heart. And it feels important to revisit this idea here because it's all too easy to assume that talk about the head versus the heart is just a somewhat cliched way of referring to something obvious like thinking versus feeling. But we should be careful of glossing over phrases such as these and taking for granted that we know what they mean. If we do, we're in danger of responding simply in terms of our own unexamined assumptions, instead of letting ourselves be guided to what potentially is a more expansive meaning. To speak of the heart is to try to convey something through the use of an image. And in this case, the image chosen, that is, the heart, has a rich symbolic background. What do we mean when we speak of the heart as a necessary organ for the apprehension of truth? And this question has a particular importance for us because 
Our topic is the symbolic life, and that ultimately is an activity of the heart and not merely of the head. So it might be helpful for us to spend some time with this symbol to see if we can get a better feel for the range of experience that it points us toward. Now, it's not possible to cover the full scope of symbolic meanings connected to the heart here. So I'll limit my focus to three features that I think speak to the work of the symbolic life. And to start with, we can note again Jung's own statement from that opening quote, that a great or beautiful truth can only mean something for us when it has become, as he says, the innermost experience and possession of the individual. The innermost experience and possession of the individual. This means that it cannot just be an idea for us, something that we wield like a tool or a weapon. It's something that involves our very being, something that transforms us. It penetrates to the heart. It gets inside of us. It affects us. The needful thing, Jung goes on to say, is not to know the truth, but to experience it. And in a sense, what he's saying is that merely to know a truth, that is to grasp it conceptually or intellectually, is to not really know it. Until it impacts us in a felt way, we don't truly understand the full implications of the thing with which we're engaged. So the first aspect of the heart to focus on is the involvement of our feelings. And this is probably the most common association that we have to this image. The domain of human feeling, and this involves the capacity to be moved, but also the ability to express care and concern to our fellow beings. And this dimension of the image can often be found in fairy tales, in particular those with the theme of the man with no heart or the man with a heart of stone. And in these stories, there's a character who trades his heart for money, or alternatively, he trades his heart in order to be free of the interference of having to care about other people so that he's able to pursue his own secret studies, which are designed to give him great power. And the misanthropic figures in these stories turn away the poor and the needy from their doors. They cause great misery around them, and often they fall in league with malevolent forces. And whoever comes in contact with them suffers harm and ends up dead. And it's only when the heart is restored to these figures that those around them are released from suffering 
and brought back to life. And they themselves awaken to feelings of regret and remorse. They become conscious of the suffering they've caused. And what these stories point to is the idea that when we live in touch with the heart, we cannot be immune to the encounter with the other, whether that other is another person or, as Jung says, a beautiful truth. But if we shut off the heart because we do not want to be altered or otherwise inconvenienced by the other, that so-called inconvenience turns dark and is visited upon the environment and the others around us. The second aspect of the heart that I want to bring attention to here is the heart as a way to knowledge and as the seat of wisdom. In the Sufi tradition, for instance, the heart is held to be an organ by which true understanding and knowledge are acquired. According to Henri Corbin, a French philosopher and scholar of Islam, the heart in the Islamic tradition is that which produces true knowledge, comprehensive intuition, and the gnosis, meaning a kind of experiential knowing, of God. And these qualities are also reflected in the biblical story of Solomon. In that story, God appears to the young king in a dream and says, what shall I give you? And Solomon responds, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. And Solomon, of course, is celebrated in the biblical tradition for his wisdom. And wisdom, we're told in the book of Proverbs, enters the heart. It's the heart in which and through which wisdom is received and discerned. The understanding heart that Solomon asks of God could also be translated, and perhaps more accurately, as a listening heart. And this brings in an important nuance, because it tells us that wisdom is not something produced by our own exertions. It's something received. One listens with the heart, and waits for wisdom to enter it. And this, in turn, is probably why so many traditions insist on the need for purity of heart. In order to achieve wisdom, only a listening heart, an empty heart, a pure heart, is free enough of concepts, categories, expectations, and above all, self-interest, to be ready and able to perceive truth. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, taught Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, for they shall see God. And compare Jesus' words with that of the Sufi mystic Shabastari, who advises, Go you, sweep out the dwelling room of your heart. Prepare it to be the dwelling room of the Beloved. When you go out, he will come in. Now, so far we've looked at the heart as the seat of human feeling and also as the dwelling place of wisdom. And the third dimension that I want to look at here is the heart as the image of the whole person. According to the religious philosopher Raymond Panikkar, the heart represents the intellectual, spiritual, and physical totality of the individual, as well as the symbiosis with other hearts. And this is expressed in the Christian tradition in the saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what we say is a reflection of those things that we have in our heart. Or, to put it yet another way, as our heart is, so are we. When we speak then of the importance of the heart in the work of the symbolic life, all these aspects and more are implicated in that statement. Such a work means reaching out towards ideas and experiences with our feelings and not just our thoughts. It means taking up a listening or receptive attitude toward them so that we can hear the wisdom they have to offer us. It also means that to really take in some new idea or experience or beautiful truth is to be changed by it because we bring all of ourselves to the encounter. There's a lovely poem from Emily Dickinson that resonates with the power of the heart symbol the symbol that we've been trying to sense our way into in this episode. And the poem goes like this. It's all I have to bring today. This and my heart beside. This and my heart and the fields and all the meadows wide. Be sure you count, should I forget. Someone the sum could tell. This and my heart and all the bees which in the clover dwell. All that she has to bring, Dickinson seems to be suggesting, 
is something that, on the one hand, is seemingly insignificant. It's all I have to bring today. And yet, on the other hand, it encompasses everything. And the heart is at the center of it. The heart connects her with all that is around her, the fields and the meadows, the bees and the clover. And it's transformed in her, becoming perhaps the poem itself, but, but something more than that as well. For together with the heart is a mysterious this. Three times she repeats that all she has to bring is this and my heart. But the poem doesn't tell us what the this is. But it does have echoes with something we've come across before in this podcast. In episode two on noise in the inner life, we looked at a line from the Tao Te Ching. The sage lets go of that and chooses this. And there I suggested that the this in that verse had to do with a kind of capacity to be present to the living now moment in which the ever-creating, ever-renewing movement of life can be touched. Ultimately, though, this, in Dickinson's poem, seems to point to something that otherwise cannot be named. And coming back around to Jung, we learn that what he means when he talks about a truth that penetrates to the heart is this, that real knowledge comes when, as he says, we find our way to the inner and perhaps wordless irrational experience. To engage life through the heart, it's true, does not give us clear answers. But it does bring us into relationship with the unnameable, the inner, and the wordless. And this is the key. This is the takeaway, really. The symbolic life is not a path of knowledge but a way of knowing. We don't embark on it just to gain knowledge about some aspect of life, but to grow in our relationship to life. And perhaps by taking on this work in this way and letting the world, in a sense, make a home in our heart, we just might find ourselves more at home in the world. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode.
well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have questions about anything you heard in the episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag DigitalYule. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored in this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available now from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good